back in the book of Mark this morning, uh, Mark 1, 35 through 45. Uh, I believe it's on page 836 on the Pew Bible, if you're using that one. And if you don't have a Bible, um, that is our gift to you. We'd love for you to have it. So Mark chapter 1, verses 35 through 45. Well, I grew up playing golf. Um, It can be the most amazing game, and it can be the most maddening game you've ever played. But when I was playing, I practiced a lot. Uh, I spent hours on the putting green, worked on all kinds of chip shots, hit thousands of balls on the range, had uh, a pre-round routine that I'd do to prepare myself for the holes ahead, both mentally and physically. Well, one day uh, I was reading Golf Digest and learned that many of the pros did exactly the same things as I was doing. Uh, Isn't that amazing? They don't just show up a minute before their tea time and start swinging the club. No, Uh, there were things that they did that grew them as players and prepared them for the tournaments that they entered. Uh, Actually, uh, to be honest, it it was kind of the other way around. Uh, I followed all of those routines because I saw the pros doing them. Uh, Their routines set them up for success. Today, we're going to see something similar in the person of Jesus. As the consummate pro, he shows us what a healthy routine looks like, but not in golf in something much, much more important in our spiritual lives. So look with me at Mark 1, 35 through 45. This is the word of the Lord. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Our two sections of the text today are these. Uh, Number one, a holy moment in verses 35 through 39. And point two, a healed man verses 40 through 45. So number one, a holy moment. Now look with me again in the text, starting at verse 35. It says, 
And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. This is mind-blowing. Remember who it is that we're talking about here. Jesus, the Son of God, fully man and fully God, perfect in every single way. And he's getting up early, after a long day of ministry, remember. And what does he do? He goes out to a desolate place to pray. We see this kind of thing all over the Gospels. When he was baptized, Luke chapter 3 tells us that he was praying. When he was transfigured, Luke chapter 9 tells us that he prayed. Before he chose the 12 apostles, Luke 6 tells us that he prayed. When a ton of people were excited about him and wanting to make him king, Matthew 14 tells us that he prayed. And on the eve of his crucifixion, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark 14 tells us that he prayed. E. Stanley Jones once described prayer as time exposure to God. Time exposure to God. He used the analogy of his life being kind of like a photographic plate. Uh, I know we don't know much about photographic plates anymore because we have iPhones, but the idea is that when exposed to God, we get progressively, we progressively bear the image of God in conjunction with the length of exposure. Prayer is time exposure to God. And Jesus is praying all the time. This is Jesus, holy, sinless, more focused and in tune with God than anyone who ever walked the earth. And he got away to pray. And while we're told in Scripture to pray without ceasing, Jesus doesn't use that as an excuse to have a normal, regular time of prayer. Friends, do you see how important prayer is? In John chapter 5, verse 19, it says this, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. John 14, verse 10, Jesus says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Jesus is completely dependent upon the Father for everything. If Jesus needed to pray to live a godly life, how much more so do we? Prayer is a vital part of the Christian life. If you struggle with what to pray or how to even get started, We've got something for you this morning. You might have noticed on the back, we have these little things called the hour that changed the world. Uh, it's divided up into five minutes, five-minute segments over an hour. So if you wanted to, to just spend five minutes, you could pick any of these things 
and spend five minutes doing it. There's even recommendations for how you might spend that five minutes in a specific text on the back. Uh, we hope that, that that would be helpful for you as you begin to, to grow prayer muscles and learn what it, it's like to have time exposure to God. Uh, our prayer room is always available. Uh, if you would like to get in there, ask us. We'd love to get you a key so that you can come in there and, and pray. Um, the, that room will be full of different things like that, different prayer prompts, different people that you can pray for, different missionaries that, that we are partnered with. Um, so that would be a good place to go and pray. As mentioned earlier, you can also come and be part of our, our church gathering. Uh, last Sunday of each month, we spend time from four to five praying together in specific ways. Do you share Jesus's need for prayer, for regular focused communion with God? Prayer was vital to Jesus's spiritual life. And I want to suggest that it's also vital to ours. So Jesus is out praying, and then look at verses 36 through 37. It says, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. You see that? Jesus is, is praying out by himself, communing with God. And the disciples come looking for him, almost accusatory. What are you doing, Jesus? Everyone's looking for you. Where are you? Remember, Jesus just cast out a demon, heals, healed Peter's mother-in-law, and then healed a bunch of other people. He's on a roll. He's building momentum. Imagine what must be going through Peter and Andrew and James and John's heads in this moment. They had dropped everything to follow Jesus. They were early adopters. That's usually only about 13% of the population, by the way. They were the first to jump on board when no one else had yet. But now, Jesus' ministry is gaining steam. He's created a buzz. He's gathered a crowd. He's moving toward popularity. And he just disappeared. Come on, Jesus. What are you doing? Let's just pause there for a minute. We're a church plant. If we're honest, these early adopters and building momentum is vital to a church plant. In many senses, you have a short runway to get up and going and out on your own. We have to gather people. This isn't a bad thing, especially if we're not using unbiblical means to do so. But I want us to notice this in the text. Jesus isn't motivated by the crowds or by popularity. He leaves the crowd behind. Jesus' version of success often doesn't look like ours. And the disciples here, they thought they knew better than Jesus on this one. What they thought he should be doing and what he was doing were two very different things. None of us ever do that, do we? Think we know better than Jesus? 
Unfortunately, we do this kind of thing all the time, right? To us, we see something and it makes total sense to us. Crowd, momentum, Jesus should have stayed there and done more miracles, right? Makes sense to us in our limited knowledge of the grand scheme of things. But Jesus sees things on a much bigger horizon, an eternal one to be exact. He knows better than we do. Do you trust him? Or do you know better than him? And look at what Jesus says next. Verses 38 and 39. So he's praying, they come out and kind of rebuke him. Verse 38, and he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that preaching is at the top of his list. For Jesus, physical healing wasn't as important as spiritual healing, which happened through preaching. Physical healings are temporal at best, but spiritual healing through the preaching of the gospel is eternal. While Jesus does heal, and he does cast out demons, and he does do miracles, we're going to see that repetitively in the book of Mark. He does all of those things. Yet, they take a back seat to preaching. This is instructive for us, is it not? I think of two different scenarios here. One, there are churches and movements where healing seems to take center stage. That's what they're known for, in fact. But preaching is only a minor part of that, if at all. Jesus would completely reject that. His miracles always serve his preaching. And that's the trajectory we see throughout the whole Bible. Miracles and healings begin to fade and the word becomes central. Second, I want us to consider the Reformation. More importantly, pre-Reformation. They had forgotten Jesus' words here. Instead of preaching being at the top of the list, it became the sacraments. The architecture, the order of service, everything centered around the Eucharist. And preaching took a back seat. Now, I'm not saying that the Lord's Supper isn't important. It is. That's why we take it every week here at the church. It's the unifying meal of the body of Christ, the church. But preaching supersedes even the ordinances. Preaching is how we even make sense of the ordinances. And the reformers knew this. They actually helped to recover this. That's why Protestant buildings often have a pulpit at the front and center of their sanctuary. Not to focus on the messenger, but to focus on the message. Not to focus on the teacher, but on the text. My friend Matt compared this to the difference between a chef and the waiter at the restaurant. As a pastor or a preacher, I'm not the chef. I'm the waiter. 
<laughs> I don't make the meals, but I get the amazing honor each and every week of delivering the meals to you. If I'm fulfilling my calling, I'm taking what's already in the word of God and faithfully delivering it to you through preaching. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 20 through 22. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Preaching, and specifically preaching Christ crucified, is central to why we exist. Preaching what was at the heart of Jesus' ministry, and it should be at the heart of ours. He's praying. He's preaching. All of this was a holy moment. And look what it fueled next. Point two, a healed man. Look with me at verses 40 and 42. It says, And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. A couple of truths that are important for us to understand here. First, Leprosy referred to a wide variety of skin diseases, including what we call leprosy today, or Hansen's disease. It was awful. It led to the rotting of the skin, visible sores, even loss of fingers and toes. Looked up some pictures on Google. It's awful. Nasty, actually. The physical effects of leprosy are horrible. But in addition to the physical effects, a leper's social life was completely ruined. Leviticus 16 and 17 actually give extensive instructions on how leprosy was to be dealt with. I'm just going to read a, a tiny section, Leviticus 16, 45 through 46. It, it tells us this. It says, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So understand this. When someone had leprosy, no one could go near them. They were forced to live outside of town. And when they came in, they had to warn everyone by yelling at the top of their lungs, unclean! No one could or would touch them. Can you fathom this? You wake up one morning, you start to kind of feel your arm itch a little bit. You look down and see a sore. 
you find out the worst. It's leprosy. You live for years and years with no physical touch of any kind. Not from your spouse, your children, not from anyone. When you go to the grocery store, you have to pop your head in the door and yell, unclean. And the place clears out. Isolation, stigma, walking death. That's what we're dealing with here. There wasn't a cure either. If you were diagnosed with leprosy, your life was essentially over. And here's the deal. The law was powerless to help the leper. If he was clean, the law could declare him clean. And if he was leprous, the law could effectively condemn him. It couldn't heal him, though. I think about Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The law could never change the leper, but Jesus could. I mean, can you imagine that the state that this guy was in? Lonely, isolated, and dying. And then he hears about this guy named Jesus, who just healed several people miraculously in the next town over. And there he is, walking into your city. So this leper came to him. Even that part is shocking in and of itself. Remember, lepers weren't supposed to come near anyone. But if you've got leprosy and there's some opportunity to be made clean, you don't care what anyone thinks in that moment. He goes to Jesus and he asks to be made clean. Look with me at verse 41. He he asks to be made clean and it says, Moved with pity, he, speaking of Jesus, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him. First of all, this word here translated pity, or might be compassion in some of your translations. This is a great word. It's this word, splachna. It's a word that means inward parts or bowels, specifically related to the affections. What the text is telling us is this. Jesus wasn't indifferent to this man. He had affection for this leper at a gut level. He's moved, and he does the unthinkable. He touches him. Can you you just kind of visualize the horror of everyone else in this scene? Again, Jesus, what are you doing? Don't touch him. You're going to become unclean. Do you see that? Jesus was willing to touch this man to identify with him, to become unclean so that this man could become clean. That's a portrait of the gospel. 
2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3, 13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Do you see this? This this doctrine is at the core of Christianity. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this is what we believe. Jesus came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. He was never, ever, ever declared unclean. He never sinned in any way. But that's not our story, is it? We all sin regularly. We're all declared unclean by the law, cursed, put out of the camp, isolated from God. But Jesus died on the cross, taking the full amount of God's just wrath on our behalf so that we could be declared righteous, redeemed, accepted, loved, clean. When we turn from sin and trust in Jesus, all of that is true for us. We're healed and declared clean spiritually. That's what this whole story is about. Jesus' miracles, though historically real, they were parables, and leprosy was especially symbolic of sin. Jesus steps in and touches this man, identifying with him, which led to new life. Maybe that's you today. In this man's case, his disease was evident, right? He knew that he had leprosy, and so did everyone else. But sin doesn't always work that way. Every single one of us has a sin disease. But we don't always see it or know that it's slowly killing us. But maybe you do in this moment. Maybe the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes and your heart, graciously allowing you to see your own sin for what it is. There's good news for you here. You can be healed immediately. Look at what the leper said. If you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. He knew that Jesus was capable of healing him. He only questioned whether Jesus wanted to. Friend, question no more. Jesus is capable of healing you, and he wants to. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. You will be saved. Now, with the time we have left, I want to look at something peculiar in this text. Look at verses 43 through 45. So Jesus leaves the crowd. He's out praying. He's preaching. This leprous man comes to him, asks for healing. Jesus heals him. And then look at verse 43. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, 
but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Again, say it with me, Jesus, what are you doing? (laughs) Jesus heals this guy with a touch and a word. Miraculous. And then tells him to say nothing. (laughs) Again, to us, with our limited perception, this doesn't make sense at all. But let's just take a step back. Do we know better than Jesus? Or does he have a broader horizon? First, notice that Jesus tells him to keep the law of Moses. This is important. Like we said earlier, keeping the law couldn't heal the leper, but a healed leper was still commanded to keep the law. That's the proper gospel order. We're not saved by keeping the law. Keeping the law doesn't earn God's love or favor in any way. But because we've been saved, we obey God's commands. We keep the law because Jesus' healing touch has been on our lives. That's what's going on here. But Jesus says to this guy, don't tell anyone. What in the world? First of all, this is a major theme in the book of Mark, known as the Messianic secret. Jesus regularly tells people to say nothing or not to say anything to reveal who he is. Why? Well, one side of it is timing. Everything Jesus does is purposeful. It wasn't time for him to be killed yet. That day would come, but not for three more years. He knew that if word spread too fast, it'd lead to his arrest and crucifixion. And it wasn't time for that yet. Once it is time for his death, this messianic secret thing goes away completely. We'll see that clearly in the book of Mark. The second reason why Jesus says what he says is this. People completely misunderstood his mission. Even if they came to believe that he was the long-awaited Messiah, they misunderstood what that meant. They thought Messiah meant military ruler who would ride in with them and conquer Rome. They didn't think suffering servant who would conquer their sins. Mark makes it clear that even the, the disciples themselves who were closest to Jesus were kind of blind on this. So Jesus says, see that you say nothing to anyone. And what happens? (laughs) This guy blows up Facebook and Twitter and even Instagram. He tells everyone and hinders Jesus' ministry. It says, Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. This man was healed physically. We're not sure if he was healed spiritually. Maybe, maybe not. But he's given a direct command not to tell people about Jesus from Jesus' lips and immediately disobeys. That's an absolute failure. But you know what? It's the exact opposite for us, isn't it? 
This man received a direct command not to tell people about Jesus, and he did. We've received a direct command from Jesus to tell people about him, and we don't. Some of Jesus' last words here on this earth were, Go and make disciples of all nations. A direct command. Do we know better than Jesus? Jesus, what are you doing? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. For these portraits of the gospel that we get, even in the healing of lepers. Lord, we are reminded that through repentance and faith, that we can be clean, we can be made whole in an instant. Lord, we confess that we could never do that on our own. Lord, you can change the leper spots and heal the heart of stone, as we sang earlier. Lord, we believe that to be true with all that we are. So we look nowhere else but you to do that. Lord, help us to be people who are not only healed by you, but who obey you and follow your commands. Not in drudgery, but in joy. Lord, we thank you for this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.